Hi everyone, and welcome to the Prototypes Podcast. This is a podcast where innovators, product creators and entrepreneurs come to discuss impactful ideas. My name is Margarida and I'll be your host today. Today I have the pleasure of introducing my guest Radhika Dutt. Radhika is an author, entrepreneur, company advisor and product leader. She co-founded Radical Product Thinking and wrote a book with the same name. Hope you enjoyed this episode. So, hello, Radhika. Uh, welcome back to the Prototypes podcast. It's your second time here. And Thank you so I much for like having to... me back. I'm really looking forward to chatting again. <laughs> to me too. I'm really um, looking forward for this conversation. And I would like to start uh, this conversation by asking you to talk a bit more about your young self. Uh, what do you like to do? your hobbies, and how did you decide to study electrical engineering in MIT? <laughs> uh, that is a harder question to answer than you would think, actually. Uh, let's see. Growing up, uh, I was good at math uh, and, you know, uh, thought that it seemed to kind of make sense to do engineering. But after getting to MIT, uh, I realized that, you know, I could do engineering, but there were other things that I liked a lot. Uh, for example, some of my favorite courses actually at MIT were uh, around uh, visual arts. And uh, I studied Japanese at uh, MIT as well, in addition to engineering. So, you know, those things I enjoyed so much. So I realized that it wasn't just about engineering. Uh, but I think partly what shaped me as well and in terms of career and why I didn't uh, end up pursuing engineering as my profession was while at MIT, uh, I was uh, getting together with a bunch of friends and we often would get together and talk about ideas for starting a company. And out of that emerged our first startup, which we called Lobby 7. And Lobby 7 is actually the entrance of MIT. <laughs> uh, but, you know, that name was kind of really catchy at the time. And therein, you know, started my journey to product. It started with entrepreneurship uh, and, uh, you know, being an entrepreneur, enjoying that and sort of a meandering path to finding product management from entrepreneurship. Yes, yes, yes. So I was going to also ask you about that. So you jump uh, right after college to be a co-founder of Lobby 7. How, how was that experience? Because it's not that common to just uh, end university and go directly to found a startup. Uh, so how was your experience and what have you learned from it? I think the biggest learning experience was uh, the existence of product diseases that are just so, so, so common. So, you know, when we started Lobby 7, we caught the first product disease that I talk about in the book, which is hero syndrome. You know, our entire focus was just about going big. Uh, and it was all about this focus on being big to the extent that, you know, we weren't even sure what problem we were solving in the market. So to give you an example, you know, our tagline or, you know, the vision for the company or tagline, really, it was to revolutionize wireless. And our tagline was enlightened wireless. And if you ask me, what does revolutionizing wireless mean? And this was back in 2000. You know, we had no idea. And if you look at so many startups, 
this is kind of the big vision they often have, you know, to disrupt blah, blah, um, or to revolutionize or reinvent blah, right? But to solve what problem? Like with what purpose are you disrupting? That part is often not clear. And that was the case for us. And where I learned about uh, the consequences of hero syndrome. Uh, and, you know, in terms of being an entrepreneur, that was only the first disease I encountered. Along the way, as I started other companies, but then even as I started working for bigger companies, my experience was that I kept seeing the same set of recurring product diseases over and over again. And so even as I grew in my career and learned from these experiences, I had to then observe others making some of these same mistakes and watching them catch product diseases. And that kind of led me to radical product thinking uh, in 2017, which is where you know, I had this burning question. Is it that we're all doomed to just learn from trial and error uh, where, you know, we make mistakes, catch product diseases, and then we have to say, okay, what am I going to do differently next time? And are we all doomed to doing that? Or is there a way each of us can learn just step by step how to build successful products and overcome these diseases? And that hypothesis was what led to radical product thinking. Yeah. Okay. So you start, like, since the beginning of your experience, all uh, of what you've seen and uh, the needs and the pain points from the founders of startups and people that work in startups, all that made you create the radical product thinking framework, which then led to the to the book. So yeah, that, that's that's great. So throughout your career, you also you were a founder and a co-founder of uh, various startups. I think four, right? And also you worked in the uh, other roles like marketing uh, and product management. So how uh, all these experiences shaped your career and your PM style? So of course, one part, it le led you to write radical product thinking, but how did it shape the rest of your career and how you do PM? Yeah, I think there were two big things out of uh, how it shaped my career and also my approach to product. One was, you know, you mentioned four startups. Out of these, actually, two are startups that I founded, and I've been part of other startups. But even the companies that were acquired, uh, that is what this four that you mentioned, that number four comes from. Some of these were larger companies, actually, but the product was kind of a startup within the, these companies, right? So my point is that the idea of a startup isn't necessarily just a small company. It can be something you start yourself, but it can be how you look at innovation in itself. Of course, what is available to you in terms of resources is very different. In a larger company, you might have different resources and how you think about day-to-day -day survival is different. Um, it might not be financial survival, but maybe, you know, whether your boss is happy with what you're doing, for example, right? Um, but the idea of innovation and in startup is the same. The second concept was, you know, regardless of what role or title I officially had, it was a realization that what we're actually doing is building a product. Uh, and I'll give you an example of what I mean by that. 
one of the companies that I worked at very early in my career was a company called Avid Technology. So my title itself at the time was Program Manager for Custom Engineering. <laughs> and if you think about custom engineering, that's the diagonal, diametric opposite of product, right? You don't think of custom engineering as product at all. But actually, everything that I was doing was what we do for building products. So for example, my role in custom engineering was, you know, at the time, the organization that I was part of within Avid, um, I was within the broadcast division. And Avid was a company that was well known in Hollywood. So every movie that was an Oscar winning movie was made using Avid products, video editing and storage. So Avid was well known in Hollywood, but it was a newcomer in broadcast. Uh, in broadcast, Sony was the dominant player and we were just entering the market and trying to go after newsrooms. So our product was very slim and it was really just a bunch of video editors. <laughs> and we had to figure out what do these newsrooms really need from us? And so we would talk to newsrooms and my role was to figure out what they needed figure out what was truly custom and try to find workarounds for that. And then share the, the vision of where we were going in terms of a workflow to address their needs and ask them to maybe pay for some of that custom engineering. But really, if you think about it, we were dissuading them from what was custom and asking them to help us build out this workflow that was end-to-end. -end. Right. So in the end, we were building out a product that was going to be scalable, although we called it you know, program manager for custom engineering. And this was how we ended up building the product. So what I realized from that experience was it didn't matter what your role itself is or your title, product becomes a way of thinking about how you want to build something, which means one, thinking about your product as a mechanism to create change in the world. In this case, you know, at Avid, it was, what's the change we were trying to bring about at newsrooms? Like, what is the problem that they need solved? And then you can ask, okay, what does the end state look like and how can I solve it? So this idea of having a product as a mechanism for creating change, where your product is not the end goal itself. It's not about creating the best editor. It is thinking about, you know, what is the customer need and how does my product create that change? That philosophy becomes a way of doing whatever work you're doing, whether you're an engineer uh, in, in product management, in sales, et cetera. Okay, so it affects all roles and you, and regardless of you adding marketing or program something in your role, you are always with the PM hat on. Exactly, uh, you're always thinking about how does my work create the change I wanna see? Yeah, and that's the also uh, a lot that part that you are saying about the uh, how this product will create a change. It's a lot about radical product thinking that uh, talks about about the importance of having a vision and a mission and how these things are essential to avoid the uh, product diseases that you refer on the book, right? So can you expand a bit more on the? the idea of radical product thinking. Yeah, the fundamental idea that radical product thinking challenges is that the way you build products is just by trying different things and iterating, 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 iterating to figure out what works in the market. Instead, 
the radical product thinking mindset is instead of just being iteration led, we have to very systematically translate a vision for what's the change we want to bring about step by step into everyday actions. This means translating that vision for change into a strategy, meaning a set of actionable steps, then into a set of priorities and, you know, how will you balance the long term against the short term? then into hypotheses for execution and how you will measure those hypotheses. And then finally, using these ideas to create the culture you need for innovation. So the idea behind radical product thinking is doing this in a step-by-step -step way as opposed to let's just iterate. And you mentioned you know, the importance of starting with this clarity of vision. This idea of needing a clear vision has been around for a long time. So one could easily say, well, that's not radical in any way. You know, we all know that we need a good vision. And so I like to explain what I mean by a good vision, which is very different from what we've traditionally learned. So what we've traditionally learned is, you know, a good vision is big, broad. It never changes. You know, it's just aspirational and it kind of shows you the light at the end of the tunnel. And I think all of that is completely flawed. This is why we have vision statements like revolutionizing wireless um, or you know, disrupting blah. It doesn't tell you, what am I doing? What problem am I solving? So a good vision in the radical product thinking way answers five questions. The who, what, why, when, and how. The first is, whose world am I setting out to change? And it's not everyone's world. It's a specific identifiable group of people. Then the second question is, what exactly is their problem and how are they solving it today? Then you can answer, why does this problem need to be solved? Because honestly, maybe that problem doesn't even need solving. And by the way, this is the trap that so many organizations and companies fall into. We say that we're going to disrupt blah, but why? Like, why is the status quo absolutely unacceptable? And if you cannot answer that, you shouldn't be trying to disrupt anything. Once you answer the why, then you can ask the question, okay, what, when will you know that you've arrived? Meaning, what's the end state when you can say mission accomplished? And then finally is the how, which is finally when you can talk about your product and say, what is, how are you gonna bring this back with your product? Mm -hmm. can, you, can you give an example uh, of a company that uh, does this correctly? Yeah, let me share an example of a company that is using the radical product thinking format for a vision statement uh, to describe their vision. And you'll see that this is a very typical format that's used that answers the who, what, why, when, and how. And I'll give you a couple of examples to just show you kind of how different these vision statements are, but it helps you address the same questions. So here's one, which is a, a consulting firm that helps organizations uh, become more inclusive. So it's a diversity, equity, and inclusion consulting firm. So their vision statement is, today when, creative, wholehearted, ethical people want to live in financial comfort and take care of their families and loved ones. They have to sell their souls or overwork to make money. This is unacceptable because it perpetuates systems of oppression where behavior that is harmful to people, the environment or the future of humanity is incentivized. 
we envision a world where creative, cold-hearted, ethical folks can be highly paid professionals. And this would incentivize others to do good and allow these creative, wholehearted, ethical individuals and organizations to use their money as medicine to connect, heal, and repair our world. We're bringing about this world through uh, ethical design and consulting services that open doors in people's minds to new ways of behaving, uh, working, organizing, and building institutions. So this is that organization's vision for you know, how they're, for what's the work they're doing and what's the problem they're solving, right? Let me share a different example. And this one is for a B2C organization. And this was actually a startup that I had. So it's the same format, but you'll see how this gives you a very different vision. So today when people who care about what they drink, but don't have the time to research, want to find wines that they're likely to like, they have to pick wines based on attractive looking wine labels or what's on sale. This is unacceptable because it's hard to learn about wine in this way and it leads to so many disappointments. We envision a world where buying wines is as simple as renting movies on Netflix. We are bringing this world about through our algorithm that gives you recommendations based on your taste and then our operational setup that delivers those wines to your table. So these are two very, very different examples, right? But the commonality is that it defines the problem and the end state. Thank you for illustrating with these two examples. How does the radical product thinking framework uh, and having a vision like this for your product, how the, does it prevent the common product diseases? Yeah, what I found is that these product diseases happen whenever there's a break in the chain. So when you're translating a vision into your everyday activities, whenever there's a break in the chain where your everyday activities become disconnected from that vision, that's where product diseases set in. Once you have this clear vision, what you really need is a really clear strategy to translate that vision into a set of initiatives. Now, Typically when an organization writes a strategy, strategies that I see are written in the format of, you know, we're going to invest $10 million to do blah, and that's going to lead to this result. But it doesn't explain kind of, what is the problem statement? Like what is the set of pain points that you're solving? And how does that translate into what it means for your product? And how does that translate into your business model, et cetera? So in the radical product thinking way, a radical strategy is what you need. A radical strategy is RDCL, the mnemonic, where R stands for what's the real pain point. So if we look at this wine startup, what's the pain point that makes someone come to our product? And the answer to that was, you know, a person comes to this because they want to learn about wine, but they don't want to go do research. They're not going to read wine magazines. And they just want to learn about wine in a way that's not intimidating and see recommendations based on their taste. So that's the pain, right? So the design, that's the next question. The RDCL, the D stands for design. The design asks the question, what's the solution to this pain? So the solution is, I need to understand your tastes to be able to give you recommendations. 
but I cannot ask you scary questions. Like if I ask you, how much tannins would you like in your wine? <laughs> you can't possibly answer that for me. And so I need to get your taste to give you recommendations, but without asking you scary questions. So then the next part of strategy is the C, which is capabilities. So what do I need in the product to deliver on the solution? So in this case, what we needed was an underlying mechanism, a quiz, to be able to get your taste preferences. So we needed to map questions uh, like, for example, how do you like your tea or coffee? Do you drink it black or with milk and sugar? That tells me how much tannins you like. So I can show you pictures of how you like your tea or coffee and let you pick which one. And so now I've mapped your tastes to a database of how much tannins you like and therefore what wine you're going to like. And now comes the next question, which is the L in the RDCL, which is logistics. How are they going to deliver the solution to you? Meaning, what's the business model? How will I, how will I support or train someone on this? Now, very often, this is the piece where we go like, oh, let's just launch a product, then we'll figure out the business model. And the reality is, this is why we often stick on a subscription model on top of product that might not be designed for a subscription model. So in this case, you know, we thought about how do we make this a subscription model? We could give you a course, a wine tasting course that you can grow with. And we learn about your tastes over time. We give, keep giving you wine tasting courses and you graduate through courses. And therefore it's a subscription model as you learn through uh, this, this growth. Now therein lies a comprehensive strategy, right? So this is that next step. Now the question is, you have a vision, a strategy, how do you translate this into a set of priorities and then execution and measurement? But now you're seeing the plan for how do you do this step-by-step step so that there's no break in the chain in terms of translating vision into action? Mm -hmm. Okay, okay, I understand. So like, the vision is the the number one thing that you need to have to then avoid the privatizes or obsessive sale disorder and like changing uh, course constantly. Um, exactly. Yes. Okay. Makes sense. Also, like I, I would like to cover the fact that you were a lecturer uh, in the university with the radical product thinking. And you, so you taught innovation using radical product thinking framework. Uh, how was your experience uh, talking product management? Okay. Yeah, so this was a really interesting course that included uh, students all the way from, you know, first year in university all the way to their last year in university. And the way I structured it was that at the beginning, I randomly assigned groups. Uh, and there were groups of four to five students and each group had to brainstorm an idea for a startup. And at the very end of the course, they had to pitch uh, a panel of investors on their startup and they would get feedback from these investors. And what I'm really proud of saying is, you know, every investor gave feedback that this was a bunch of the best pitches that they've heard uh, in a long time. And what we did was we used the radical product thinking framework to start with 
vision of what's the problem they're trying to solve. Then they have to create a strategy, but they have to figure out, are these pain points real pain points or are they imaginary? So they had to go do user research. So they had to write user research scripts, go do the user research, then craft a strategy uh, and therefore edit the strategy after they had crafted it as a result of the user research. Then they had to translate this into what would it mean for how they were positioning this product against competition? Uh, and that was part of how they were using uh, you know, all the market research and their strategy to be able to plan a go-to-market strategy. Then they had to translate this into how would they execute? In what order would they build their product? And how will they measure success? So that they can even talk to their investors about this is how they measure success. And so the result was really well thought through pitches that were comprehensive all the way from what the idea was to kind of what their ask was. It's it's amazing how these students by the end of the course were ready to uh, pitch a startup to investors. Uh, that's really, really amazing. Uh, and I'm really curious if uh, any of the startups that uh, were creating or were imaginated during the course uh, actually became uh, uh, actual startups. There were a couple of groups that actually were thinking about starting a company uh, based on their idea from this course, but I don't know if they actually took that forward. Uh, and I think there's just so much to building a startup um, that, you know, uh, I didn't teach anymore after that semester because I realized it was just so much work. This was all consuming for me to do this course. Uh, and so I haven't um, taught again to follow up and see kind of where this goes from there. But I felt like, you know, it was definitely like you could see kernels of this uh, coming together. And from my own experience, it was really rewarding because I wish this was the kind of guidance that I had had when we had our first startups um, that, you know, a lot of what I was teaching in this was through that set of experiences gained over the, over the last 20 years. And if only I had this course when I started out. Mm -hmm. So you wrote the book that you wish you, you had when you started. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I think it's also the kind of book that I wrote that I wish I'd had, not just for startups, but really as I was growing in my career, some of the obstacles that I faced, I, you know, these are techniques that I have learned as a result of those obstacles. I'll give you one example. You know, if you're a woman in tech, in the corporate world, and you are trying to push forward your vision, your view of priorities and what someone, what your team should be doing, what you think stakeholders should be doing, often what you say should be done, if you're assertive, very often women are criticized for being assertive. Whereas if a man says exactly the same thing, the feedback they will hear is that he's being a good leader, whereas she is not getting enough consensus. <laughs> and so this double standard that women are often judged by, how do you deal with it, right? And so what you'll see is very often, women need to take a more facilitative approach. And honestly, men need to do the same, 
but society would judge them differently. For example, you know, Elon Musk is seen as a great leader because he will just push whatever vision down anyone's throat. But that's not good leadership, right? You need to get enough buy-in from everyone around you. So everyone could use a facilitative approach, but it's only women who are criticized for it. Uh, so the technique that I've learned to use is you'll notice that the radical product thinking format, the vision, for example, is a fill in the blank statement. Why? Because you can use this as a group exercise so that everyone can share their perspective on the answers to the who, what, why, when, and how. This really helps everyone feel heard and buy into the shared vision. Similarly, the approach to prioritization is a facilitative approach. The way I do prioritization is, you know, instead of my just telling everyone, this is priority one, two, and three, I draw up an X and a Y axis on the board where the Y axis is, what's the vision fit? Like, is it good for the vision or bad for the vision? And the X axis is, is this helping us survive or not? Essentially, this X and Y axis is long-term versus short-term. And long-term versus short-term is how we're always making decisions. But for your team, you make it a facilitative discussion by drawing up long-term versus short-term in X and Y axis format. So things that are good for long-term and short-term, those are easy decisions, right? We aren't all gonna argue over those. But if we only focus on those short-term easy decisions, then we're never investing in the vision. Investing in the vision means doing something that's good for the vision long-term, but not helpful in the short-term. So an example of this would be, maybe you need to fix technical debt. You need to do some user research uh, or refactor code for some time. All of this is investing in the vision because it's helpful for the long-term, but not the short-term. And the opposite of that, right, is taking on vision debt, meaning it's good for short-term survival, but it's bad for the long-term. You know, if you take that, that quadrant, I call it taking on vision debt, because if you keep doing that, you catch the disease obsessive sales disorder, where you're constantly doing things maybe that brings in revenues. It's helping you survive, but it's not good for the vision, right? And so prioritization and a facilitative approach means drawing up this and then helping others see why you're advocating for doing something in a particular quadrant, asking the team to share their input. You know, where do you think this user story goes? And as a result, what is our sprint plan? You can use the same approach when talking to your CEO. You know, I feel like we should not take on this vision debt. It makes decisions less contentious. You're not arguing about, I think we should do this. No, I think we should not. You're talking about a feature, talking about, is this good for the vision or not? Is this helpful for our survival or not? It makes it more objective and therefore easier to talk about where are we misaligned? Are we misaligned on the vision? Are we misaligned on our incentives? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yes. Yes, I understand. And uh, the fact is that using those frameworks, it's helpful for any person that wants to be a, a good leader, whether it's a man or a, or a woman. Like, of course, you referred to the example of Elon Musk, um, but that's not, as you said, not good leadership in the first place. So it should not be a role model or at least for someone that aspires to be a good leader. Exactly. And to your point, right, 
to be a good leader, very often we think it's about me making the right decisions and just telling people what to do. But in reality, to be a good leader, you want to share your rationale. You want get, to get people to think like you do and understand the trade-offs so that they have the autonomy to make those decisions so that you do not have to be in every meeting and dictate every little detail. Yes, yes. So avoid micromanagement and give ownership to people. Yes. Okay. Exactly. Well, uh, let's change topic because this one, I think it's going to be very juicy, the arms race uh, article. So you you wrote a very interesting article in 2020 that uh, you reposted again uh, with a few weeks ago regarding ChatGPT. And the name of this article was Ending the Arms Race in the Tech Industry. And one of the things that you advocate in this article is that companies create more and more sophisticated tools to extract profit from users, and they have all the incentives to act, act like this. And this affects user well-being and creates collateral damage. Uh, one of the sentences that you add on this article, and I think it illustrates what I just said, is often... What gets in the way of being truly user-centric is that our business models are often in conflict with user well-being. So can you expand a bit more on this article and how it relates with to ChatGPT and AI technology? Yeah. Very often what we do is we build products just thinking about the product itself as the end goal, the success of the product is in itself the end goal. We don't think about what is the change we're trying to create in the world through that product. If we think about you know, Facebook and the vision behind Facebook, the vision at the beginning when Facebook started was to be open and connected. But if you say, wait a minute, what does open and connected actually mean? What is the change that you want to see in the world? Is a completely open and completely connected world actually a good thing to create? I don't think there was actually any of that thought into creating the product. It was all a focus on how can we maximize profits by getting users to engage to the maximum possible. So that's what I meant by that arms race. What has happened with ChatGPT and in releasing ChatGPT early, before honestly it's ready for human consumption, this is an arms race in tech in terms of who puts out this technology first, but again without this clarity of what's the change that we envision in the world using AI. So we are building a product purely for the success of the product itself, meaning, you know, is this going to sell well, is this going to be used lots, but is it gonna create the outcomes we want in society? That's the piece that nobody has thought through. Why am I saying it's not been designed for creating the right outcomes in society? ChatGPT is based on large language models. You know, it's been a couple of years, I think now, um, Timnit Gebru was fired from Google for pointing out the issues with large language models that large language models look at all possible text and therefore it includes so much text that includes bias, hate, hate language, etc. And so we are basing all this AI 
on large language model that incorporates uh, so much um, that incorporates so much bad in our text. If we wanted to build AI that's creating equitable outcomes, that does not include all of this hate speech and violence, et cetera, we would ground up design AI with those outcomes in mind. Whereas the way AI is being built right now, and which is the same approach Facebook took, was let's just build it, we'll release it, and we'll fix problems later. And we've seen how well that has worked with Facebook. Why do we think that this approach is going to work again? We're, we don't know all the unintended consequences that come out of ChatGPT. We already know that they're not going to be good. You even hear Sam Altman uh, talking in the congressional hearing saying, you know, this could bring about the end of civilization just like any pandemic could. And yet his response to that and talking about these dangers is not, we need to build ChatGPT differently, not just use large language models. It's just, oh, you need to regulate us and you need to regulate AI in general. Mm -hmm. Yes. I was remembering the WhatsApp example that you gave on the on the article as well. Uh, I think it's in, in another one. But um, the fact that being doing products for the sake of the success of the product or for the business uh, in mind only might lead you to take actions that are a bit unethical, like uh, WhatsApp uh, storing information about the users. And then they said, uh, okay, this, there's no problem because we are never going to sell this company. And then they sold to, to Facebook. So, yes. Exactly. Uh, See, what happens is we often think about being ethical as this heroic act that one day there'll be a line in the sand that someone is asking you to cross. And being ethical means that you will heroically say, no, that's what I'm not going to do. But in reality, nobody is going to ever draw this real line in the sand. It'll never be obvious to you that this is the point where this is unethical. There is nobody blatantly asking you to do something terrible or unethical. Instead, what happens in our product and what becomes unethical over time is lots of small decisions that we continue to make that are small trade-offs that together accumulate and turn out to create inequitable outcomes in society. So the example that you were talking about in the case of WhatsApp, he thought he was being ethical, but there were small trade-offs. The trade-offs he made, for example, was, you know, uh, WhatsApp, it stores uh, all the contact lists from your phone to their servers. So for example, when you want to install WhatsApp, if you say you do not want to share your contact list, it will not let you install WhatsApp. The other part of what WhatsApp does is it stores metadata on who called whom. And in fact, this is the kind of metadata that Facebook wanted and why Facebook bought WhatsApp, right? But they were storing all of this data, but to justify to themselves that this is not unethical they said we will never sell face uh, sorry we will never sell whatsapp 
Mm -hmm. What ended up happening in the end is, yes, they did sell out. So all of those small product decisions didn't seem unethical at the time, but they kept being small trade-offs until that final point. Yes. And the same way that you refer that is never going to be a, a, a line drawn in the, on the, with sand that is uh, like behind this line, you are being unethical and on this side, you are being ethical. Uh, the same way, there are no heroes. There's not going to appear one person that will save us all. So we should all take responsibility, uh, especially us that uh, are entrepreneurs, product managers, designers, and work uh, in the tech industry. How can people take responsibility in their jobs? The first step in taking responsibility is the realization that each of us is affecting people, affecting human lives through the products that we build. The second step is, you know, we often feel like I am just this cog in this big machine. And even if I don't do this, someone else is going to do this anyway. So I might as well do this. But to that, I think the biggest realization is you are voting with your labor for the world that you want to create. And it's your labor that matters. Don't think about what other people are doing, but what vote are you casting for the world you want to create? Now, when I say this, right, I'm not expecting something unrealistic. Obviously, we all need to work, feed our families. But these are questions that we have to be intellectually honest when we ask ourselves in terms of how am I affecting the world? How am I creating digital pollution in the world through my product? And, you know, what is the, the vote that I want to cast? If we are intellectually honest, then we can start to think about what changes do we want to make? That's, I think, where responsibility really starts, asking these hard questions, because there is no right or wrong answer to these questions. And so don't judge yourself in asking these questions, but just at least start by asking these questions. That's the starting point for taking responsibility. Yes. Yes, uh, being aware, bring some awareness uh, around this topic is super important. Uh, so we are not uh, uh, caught up like when this, the big, when we are confronted with uh, uh, this type of questions in our career. How can someone balance the business goals and the product vision? Because what might happen many times is that the business goals, like there are certain actions that you can make that will improve a lot your business goals and will make you get there faster, but they might be slightly unethical uh, and they are not aligned with your product vision, but we all suffer pressure to achieve those business goals. So how can people balance these two opposite forces? Yeah, I think uh, and, and by the way, this is the same question, not just for being unethical, but also in terms of balancing business needs with needs for the vision. Right? Um, and so the answer comes back to thinking about the long term versus short term, the vision versus survival. One of the things that's really helpful to track over time is how much vision debt are you taking on? You know, this is the piece that we often 
ignore? Like how much vision debt do we take on? Uh, and so we often do things that are good for business goals, but might not be good for the vision. So when it comes to building a product in this way, forget the ethical questions for a second. You know, if we constantly think about just meeting business goals, but maybe something that's not good for the long-term vision, that's where, as I mentioned, you know, you run into obsessive sales disorder, where your product keeps doing things that, you know, are custom features. Um, it's kind of all over the place and you lose track of where you're going, right? Now, when we think about trying to build ethical products, it's the same kind of mindset that you have to have, which is, you know, you have business goals, which is, let's take the example of WhatsApp. It was to grow quickly. And to grow quickly is why WhatsApp was storing everyone's uh, contact list from their phone to their servers so that all these other people could get notifications about, you know, who else is using WhatsApp, right? And so this sort of uh, a feature, if you're thinking about adding this, you know, you have to think about how much of such vision debt am I taking on? And it's the lack of keeping track of this as actual, in this case, ethical debt, right? Like this was really bad for long-term vision. If you think about uh, the vision of WhatsApp founders at the very beginning, they wanted to create something that was not going to enable authoritarian governments. This was one of their uh, founding ideas, right? And this goes so far against that idea because the way this metadata can be used, you know, very often people using WhatsApp say, oh, but WhatsApp has end-to-end -end encryption. It's not what is said in uh, a text message that often matters. Often, if I know a number belongs to a journalist and I know your number called that journalist, I know that you've not been up to something good. <laughs> so, you know, very often this is the kind of metadata that is used. So it was very clearly going against the vision of uh, creating a product that is not going to help authoritarian governments. So the, these are the kinds of decisions that when you talk about on a vision versus survival as a team, when you communicate as a team and hold each other accountable, that is really what taking responsibility is about. It's creating this awareness and, you know, as a team thinking about what is the world we want to bring about, right? What are the equitable outcomes we want to create? And then holding ourselves accountable through such open communication. And for that open communication, you need uh, psychological safety, et cetera. But, you know, those are things that you need to address as a team. And radical product thinking also talks about a lot of these other elements. But to, to bring it all together, like communication is a big piece of it for us to be able to hold ourselves accountable. So if WhatsApp had used radical product thinking framework, they would have put the post-it of uh, storing the metadata uh, in the bottom in terms of in the axis of the vision and everyone would have seen it. Okay. Right. <laughs> so, so just to conclude the, uh, this topic, do you think uh, the PM job should include an hypocritic oath? Yes, product managers absolutely do need to think about the Hippocratic Oath because, you know, just like doctors, 
doctors say, I see your problem. They say this to the patient, I see your problem and I'm prescribing this medicine, which is that solution to the problem. They don't then say, good luck to you for taking this medicine. I don't care what happens to you afterwards as a result. And so when we as a product person say, I see your problem and I'm prescribing this product to you for fixing that problem, we can't then say, okay, and what happens to you after you use that product? You know, good luck and Godspeed. <laughs> we have to be like that doctor and think of it as the Hippocratic Oath when we hand someone a product. Yeah. Well, uh, based on our conversation, it makes total sense uh, to start writing it. Um, okay, so final question, Radhika. Um, you are going to be in the Prototype Conference in October. So why should people join you uh, for your talk and, conf and workshop uh, at the Prototype Conference? So... I'm really excited about Productized Conference, by the way, first of all. Uh, I'm excited that it's going to be in person. So this is going to be so much more fun in person. Yes. Uh, we are going to <laughs> use really entertaining and fun examples. We'll laugh together and learn. Uh, and in the workshops, you'll get to apply these ideas so that you can not just listen to these ideas, but actually work through and get hands-on experience with how you can take these learnings and apply these as a product manager. So I'm yeah. really excited to do that all together. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's it, Radhika. Thank you so much. And uh, we'll see each other in October. Thank you so much. I'm really looking forward to it. And we'll see you there. <laughs>